And I think a big mistake is to, to get so focused on customer acquisition that you don't fix the issues that are needed to make the product successful. You need to pause at that point in time, stop trying to get new customers and make sure that the product really works because if you keep getting new customers. Hello everyone. Welcome to hashtag Startup Basics series in the Insights Alley podcast where startup founders and teams can learn from proven founders and experts about product, growth, sales, strategy, and everything in between to make their own startup successful. I'm your host, Arun Verma, and let's get started. In today's episode, we will talk to David Scott, who is a general partner at Matrix Partners, David is a five-time entrepreneur turned VC. He writes an awesome blog called forentrepreneurs.com and he is for sure a SaaS whisperer. We will talk about funnels of a SaaS startup in every stage of the journey. How do you design your funnel? How do you optimize them, scale them, etc. So here is the episode. Hello, David. Welcome to Insights Alley. And thanks a lot for taking out some time for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hi, Arun. It's a pleasure. So, David, would you like to start with telling us your story in brief of your career from your multiple startups to Matrix Partners and nowadays? Sure. I was originally half South African, half English and studied computer science, left college. And within about seven months of leaving university, I found a problem that was interesting, wrote some software for it and kind of accidentally started my first company. Wasn't really intending to start it uh, as I was in South Africa at the time. And I didn't really want to be living in South Africa, but it was pretty successful and took off. So I was stuck there for a while. And then I figured out how to move it to the States. I did a total of um, four startups and one turnaround uh, during my time. And my last two startups were backed by Matrix Partners, which is how I got to know these guys. I had a lot of different VCs and these guys were very differentiated and, and had been phenomenal partners for me. So, And then when I finished my last startup, which had gone public, I was looking around for what I might do next. And um, it was sort of interesting to me that I like helping startups and I also like investing. And that really told me that the, the venture path might be a great path for me. And these guys at Matrix invited me to join them. And so about 18 years ago, I became a venture capitalist, uh, having switched across from being an entrepreneur. And I've always really, I think, remained true to the fact that I'm more fundamentally an entrepreneur than a venture capitalist. So that's probably what you notice when you look at um, the stuff that I write. It doesn't really talk about venture capital. It really talks about the experience of the entrepreneur. That's a quick uh, quick summary for you. I've, I've invested in companies like HubSpot and Zendesk, which might be familiar to your uh, listeners. And I'm currently in some very interesting products. One of the ones that I think is very exciting right now is Apollo, the GraphQL company. Salsify, Namely, um, Zaius are all examples of current portfolio companies of mine that are in the SaaS and um, uh, infrastructure space. Awesome. Great. So David, let's start with today's topic. My first question to you is like very fundamental, but like, How do you define and think of what a funnel is from a very fundamental point of view? Obviously, we'll uh, jump into different funnels for different stages and different purposes in a SaaS company later on in our conversation, Like, but basic 101. Yeah, I think of it as being four phases. So the very first phase is how do you identify people that are appropriate suspects or prospects for your company? And then how do you find a way to initiate a dialogue with them and then turn them into a, a lead? And I 
I define a lead as being the moment where you've captured their email address or something similar to that that allows you to stay in touch with them and communicate with them. And I call that the top of the funnel stage. Then there is a middle of the funnel stage, which is where you take those leads and it's typically a marketing process and you nurture them and you qualify them and you try to figure out which of those leads are really appropriate potential customers and which ones of them are really ready to buy. And those would come out of the that phase as being marketing qualified leads that get handed across to salespeople typically. Sometimes you might not have salespeople, in which case it, you might actually just close them at that stage. But most commonly these days, we see some level of sales function that um, takes on that lead. And then there is the sales phase of the funnel, which is where the salespeople work on those qualified leads and convert them into purchasing customers. And then the fourth phase is the customer success part of the funnel, where in particularly in all of these recurring revenue businesses, which is where almost everybody has gone to these days, it's super important that you retain that customer and successfully onboard them. And so that fourth phase is about onboarding them and um, making them extremely successful and happy and looking for a way to expand the amount of revenue that you get from them. There really is kind of, there's also a fifth phase here, which I should mention, and that is how do you find a way to take your happy customers and turn them into a referral mechanism that essentially refers new customers to you? And I believe that if you get that working successfully, that's one of the most powerful ways to drive new business because if you think about your own patterns of, of things that you really trust when you're deciding what to buy, I think one of the things you trust the most highly is your friend's recommendations for a product that they've used that they really like. And so if you can get that um, flywheel working, Brian Halligan refers to it as a flywheel, and actually I think he got that from Jeff Bezos of Amazon, that's a very potent thing that really accelerates your business uh, as well. So let's think of that as being a fifth phase there, which is hard to turn your your customers that you have into a powerful referral mechanism for you that, that feeds the top of the funnel. Right. Perhaps making the funnel into a loop, right? Yes, exactly right. Right. Awesome. So David, I know you are a big proponent of thinking of a SaaS startup's journey in three phases that you have defined, right? And for the listeners, those would be first is search for product market fit, and then search for repeatable, scalable, profitable growth model, and then scaling the business. So since these three phases are so much different from each other, so let's start with the first one, right? So the first phase would be from the day one until you reach or achieve product market fit sort of, right? And period, I guess the only goal of the startup is to not die or run out of money, right? And obviously find the product market fit. So in such a scenario, David, what do you think should be, should the funnels look like for the founders and startup? So I'm curious to know, how do you think about this and like what would your advice be? Yeah, yeah. So it's worth pointing out that there's a bit of overlap between the search for a repeatable, profitable and um, scalable sales motion with the product market fit. And that's that point of overlap is where you really do start to create a true funnel that um, you're trying to make repeatable. So let's pick up the phase before that, which is when you don't really have that. And that would then be a customer development funnel. And I think what you're looking for there is not to sell people product initially, but to have as many conversations with them as you possibly can do that are really, truly constructive. And to have a constructive conversation, I think you have to be willing to, number one, really listen truly 
to what your customers would genuinely tell you about their reactions to your product. And that's a hard thing to have because many of the times founders don't have enough people to talk to. So they tend to talk to their friends and their friends are concerned about being polite to them. And so they don't feed them the right, the real honest feedback that they actually wouldn't buy this product. It's not actually um, something that interests them. And that politeness is a disaster for founders because it leads them to think that they've got a positive feedback signal from the market when they really don't. So that funnel is is really all about trying to find, figure out where is your optimal customer. So this is a generally very, very tough phase for founders. I see them getting uh, into a lot of difficulty about this because they don't want to say no to every possible use of their product. And really to be successful, uh, one of the steps that they're going to want to do is to figure out that they can't actually address the needs of every customer segment. And they're going to be forced at some point in time quite soon to pick one segment. So as you're doing customer development, you probably want to talk to all segments, but you need a scoring system in place that you can figure out as quickly as possible who's the segment that has got the lowest resistance to buying your product. It's the easiest uh, segment to serve and that actually has money to spend on a product. And that scoring system with those three points there should lead you quickly to honing in on a single, I could be a vertical or a customer size, but it's a definition of a group of people who buy the same way, who are looking for the same product features and who will respond to, you know, the same messaging, the same price points, et cetera. And you want to, so you want to start broad and quickly figure out who that group is. And then once you've figured out what that group is, have as many conversations as you possibly can do in that area to try to really hone in on whether there is actually a pain point that's severe enough. I use a term that's been around for many years, hair on fire. The customer needs to have their hair on fire because if it's not an urgent pain point, you'll have lots of interesting conversations with people where they'll be happy to talk to you. But when it comes to getting them to actually purchase the product and spend money with you, it's likely that you won't be successful there because it's just not a high enough priority for them. Right. That makes sense. Right. So in terms of, let's say you are acquiring these sort of users or potential customer prospects, and then obviously you're trying to make them successful also if you have sort of started making some products. So like, how do you balance that? For example, uh, in terms of priorities, so like your funnel, as you said, is very simple. You talk to some customer, you try to understand their problem based on the feedback and whatever pain points that you found, you make the product and then you give the product to these people and perhaps they would find value in it, right? So trying to make, let's say two customers successful and trying to do that over and over and again versus trying to get more customers and more prospects perhaps. So how do you balance between the two? Uh, Okay, great, great question. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So I, I think the answer to this is pretty simple, which is when you've gotten your first customers, I would actually stop trying to focus on adding too many new customers. And I would now turn the focus intensely onto getting the product installed with the small set of customers that you've, you've decided you want to start working with. And it's typically, you know, something like three to five, not more than that, because anything more than that, you won't have enough time to spend with them. And now you really want to be very, very certain that what you've built is actually working for them. And I don't, when I say working, I really mean that it's delivering the business benefits that you were promising that you would achieve for them, not that they're simply using it because usage is not an indicator of whether they're going to really truly spend money with it or actually keep using it over a long period of time. To get them to keep using it over a long period of time, it's essential that it delivers you know reliable, consistent business benefits to them. So the metric that you're, you're looking for there is what is the definition of the business benefit benefit that we think we're going to do? Is it saving money? Is it creating more leads? Is it shortening the time to resolve uh, support tickets? You know, no matter what's one of those things, but notice that those are defined
define in business terms that have an impact on the business of that customer. And then you want to find a way to measure if your product is actually doing that or not, and then work with the customers to really ensure that it is. And inevitably, you're likely to find that the product is both buggy and needs to be worked on to fix bugs, but more importantly, it also needs additional features or additional integrations with other software to really make it deliver on the benefits there. And I think a big mistake is to to get so focused on customer acquisition that you don't fix the issues that are needed to make the product successful. You need to pause at that point in time, stop trying to get new customers and make sure that the product really works. Because if you keep getting new customers, you're not actually going to be able to make them happy. So you're wasting time um, signing up more people and getting them to start using the product if, if they're not going to be happy with it. You'll just lose them. Makes sense. Makes sense. Let's move to the next stage and perhaps the bridge that you mentioned, which is mix of between the two stages, which would be very difficult from the stage of finding product market fit. And since in this phase, it's all about making that repeatable and scalable system and machine. So how does the funnels get upgraded? Like all of them, right? So your top of the funnel for acquisition, then your sales led funnel, or perhaps a self-serve funnel, or perhaps a mix of both, right? And of course, the product usage and product delivery value proposition, uh, that funnel. Right. So, so before I answer that question, if it's all right with you, I'd really like to expand the stage that we're talking about, the stage that we call building sure. a repeatable, scalable and profitable sales process. Of course, of course. And what I want to do there is I want to break Break it down into a series of steps, which are like five sub-steps for that. So to help get the understanding of what those five steps are and why they matter, I want to look at these words that I use to describe this phase. So you hear that repeatable, scalable, and profitable. So, so repeatable uh, is a great word because it says that you know how to do something in a way that every time you do it, it will work the same way and you can repeat it over and over and over again. Scalable means that you know how to take that thing that you can repeat and scale it as much as you want to. So if somebody gives you more capital, you can take what we were doing at a million and change it up to a hundred million and it's still going to continue to, to, to work the same way. And profitable means that every time you repeat this action, you make money out of it. And if you think about those three words, they're very, very powerful words. They, they are exactly what you need for a cash making machine. So you can now pour money into this machine and every time you pour money in, you, you can repeat a process which can generate more money. That's the definition of profitable. And you can turn that crank as fast as you want to. So if if somebody gives you enough capital, you can keep turning that crank faster and faster and faster. And so that's why these are such powerful words and they're very carefully chosen words. So let's let's now turn the attention to how do you break this down into steps. And I, I think the right thing to recognize here is at the very beginning of this journey, you have no idea how to sell your product. You don't have a, a clue of, of a bunch of very important questions that have to get answered. So the questions would be, who is the optimal customer segment, the right target segment to go after? Who do we need to talk to in that customer organization to sell our product to? What message should we use when we talk to them? What price points should we be selling the product to them at? What specific product features might be needed to really completely support um, making them successful with the product? And you may need to understand things like what's the best way to sell to them? You know, Should we do a proof of concept or should we allow them a free trial for a week or should we allow them a free trial for two weeks? And should 
we split the features of the product into a freemium thing? And then, uh, so all these are questions that you really don't know the answer to. You might have some guesses about them, but you're not clear on them. So this is very important to understand that there there are a traditional salesperson, when you bring in a traditional salesperson, they can't work in an environment like that because they're used to being handed a playbook and told how to go and take these steps to execute on that playbook. And in this particular situation here, the playbook has not been developed. So uh, you're not ready to hire traditional salespeople. And my recommendation is that the very first phase is to try to figure out how to make this sales motion and define what it is and make make sure that it's repeatable. And the key thing to do there, in my view, is that the founders need to be the people that are actually leading the selling at that stage, not acquired salespeople. Now, Occasionally, you may have a founder that is very, very technical and quite uncomfortable in front of customers. And if that's the case, then my recommendation would be that you bring in what I call a pathfinder trailblazer type of salesperson. By the way, are the dogs in the background disturbing the conversation? Because if, if so, I can quietly just shut the door here. Hold on a second. Sure, sure. Okay, hopefully that's a bit quieter. Yeah. Um, so you, 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 this Pathfinder Trailblazer salesperson is a special kind of salesperson that is actually able to take a very unsure sales uh, motion that isn't been defined and help you define it. And it's often a good idea, even if you are good founders, to have one type of person like that working with you. And your goal is to figure out how to sell, to, answering these questions one, you know, one by one by one. And in every meeting, you're sitting there trying to figure out: Are we talking to the right person, or, or maybe we should? be talking more senior is the message that we're trying out here resonating and if not how do we change it is the product got the right things that they care about or does it need to be integrated with salesforce or zendesk or something else like that before it'll actually work for them and so all those things you're having this very careful kind of a set of meetings where you're determining that and at the end of all of that you would end up with something that you think is repeatable and you're ready to try handing over to an ordinary salesperson and i should point out that one of the biggest mistakes that i see companies making is thinking that they finished this step before they have and hiring a lot of salespeople and then things go badly wrong for them because now those salespeople are not productive, they're burning a lot more money and it's much harder to figure out this sales motion because you can't keep a tight level of communication between everybody that's meeting with customers and listen to the feedback that you're getting and kind of refine and change things. Uh, it's super hard to try to re-educate seven salespeople on a new sales motion every week when you when you things are changing quickly. So that's, that's one of the most important pieces of advice I give people here is do not think you can jump steps here and skip ahead to the next step before you're really ready to genuinely make that move. So when you are ready to make that move, my, my advice now is to hire two salespeople and get very ordinary salespeople and now change the founder's roles so that instead of actually selling, founders now suddenly become people whose job it is to is to hire and enable those salespeople. So as soon as they bring them on board, they've got to find out if they've got this process so well-defined that they can teach these other new salespeople that have just joined how to sell and make them successful. And if they can, then they hire another two salespeople and keep testing. And then you switch to the next phase, which is how to try to make this thing scalable and find out if you can increase your leads flows to support more and more salespeople and make sure that whenever you hire salespeople, you can always make them productive. And it is quite predictable how long it takes to make them productive. And then lastly, when you finish doing that, we generally find that at that phase, you really need to focus on customer success because it 
even though you might have been good at it in the very early days, as you scale, it inevitably gets worse and right. you have to go back fix it. And then at the very ending phase of the stage is to really look at um, CAC and LTV and make sure that you are a profitable sales motion as well as not just something that can be repeated and scaled. That this is really a lifetime value of the customer is great and the uh, far exceeds the life the cost to acquire the customer. That makes sense. So like if you think of funnel as a visual representation of the whole process or the engine that you're trying to make from zero to a successful customer, right? And in this phase, you're just trying to build that thing. And obviously by careful observation and iterations and experimentations, you're trying to build the perfect funnel part, right? Yes, yes. And 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 again, I here I want to go back to those four phases here. So as you're trying to build this repeatable motion, what you're trying to do is have a very well-defined top of funnel motion, things that you do to find prospects and get them to come to your website and then get them to give you their email address when they come to your website. Then middle of funnel. So what steps will you take to nurture people? What will you do to qualify them? And what process would you then do to hand them over to, to sales, assuming you're going to use salespeople? What does the sales process look like? Do, you know, do, they, do, do they need, for example, a sales engineer that does a demo for them, that sort of thing? That's, uh, you're def- building out and defining how you do top of funnel, how you do middle of funnel, how you do your selling steps, and how you do the customer success steps. You know, what do you do for onboarding? What do the materials look like there? How do you, you know, what kind of person do you need to make the customer successful? Is it a you know, pretty simple telephone call or is there some more sophisticated process you need for that? And so that's when I talk about this motion, this, this, this repeatable motion, it is a well-defined series of steps that you take in top of funnel, middle of funnel, selling stage and customer success stage that's written down, documented, has the right materials to support the people and has definitions of what people are needed to do that job and so you know who to go and hire. And that's something that I see people being very lazy about defining. They're, they sort of think they know it and they kind of have it in their heads, but they don't take the trouble to, to write it down. When it's not written down, a new salesperson joins and it's tremendously wasteful because there's no onboarding training course for them to go through to learn who the customers are, to learn about the problem, to learn about the product, to learn about how to work with the company, etc. That's, you know, to be really successful here coming out of the stage, what you're going to want is really good documentation, systems, and automation underneath those four phases there. How do you think founders should make sure that the this process and this funnel doesn't become too complex, right? So for example, as you mentioned, let's say they've thought of, okay, SDRs would do XYZ and then it would go to an account executive and then it would go to, let's say, some pre-integration team and like it could become very complex very easily. So like, how do you, how should founders make sure that is still very short and to the point only? Right. Well, so I think it goes without saying that you want the simplest process you can possibly create that works and you should only add complexity if you're really forced to add complexity. Um, another way that I like to use that I think really helps people to be successful at this is to get extremely focused on your buyer. So one of the biggest mistakes I see being made by people is that they define the funnel according to how they want it to work. And an example of how this happens is I think they might go to a conference like a Sastra or something like that, and they'll listen to a speaker from a company that they really admire. Somebody from Zendesk might get up and talk about or Atlassian might get up and talk about how do they sell. And they come away from that conference thinking, well, that's a company that I want to emulate. I'm going to try to make my sales process work the same way. And in my opinion, that is 100% the wrong way to go about it. 
The right way to go about it, and it's very rarely done, is that you need to become an expert at understanding your buyer and how they go about their buying process and then design your sales process around that. And so for me, the one of the most potent and powerful things that I do when I work with startups is to get them to draw a diagram of how they think their buyer goes through the different stages of figuring out whether they actually want to buy something, evaluating different vendors, becoming comfortable about whether something's really going to work for them or not, how they then need to go through the budgeting process, et cetera, to justify it and get it purchased. And then they should think about how do they design a funnel that fits with how that buyer goes through their journey. And inevitably, they're going to find if they haven't done it correctly like that, they will have a funnel that breaks and it, it will be very inefficient. And so if you do that, some interesting things happen. One of them is you will inevitably find that there are places where what you want your customer to do is not something that the customer, the buyer themselves wants to do. So for example, you really do need their email address to allow you to start communicating with them. But if you ask most prospects to give you their email address on a website, they're very wary of that. So now you have what I, what I think of as a funnel blockage point. And you have to think about, can I redesign this step? Can I make it different? Can I make it work where I get that email address maybe later on after I've given them some value? Because people will be much more willing to give you an email address after you've already established some kind of trust with them. So I like to help people figure out that if you have a funnel blockage point like that, you should ask yourself the question, you know, what is the resistance that stops the customer? Why do they not want to give me their email address? You know, what concerns do they have? Is it privacy or spam? They don't want to get spammed in the future. And how do I solve that? I can solve it by doing motivational things so I can give them something as a reward for giving me their email address. So, you know, sometimes you see people using very monetary rewards, like they'll give away an iPad for every you know, 100 people that give them their business card at a booth to better things, which is where you might actually give them, for example, if they happen to be in the sales and marketing area, they might give them access to a report that's got really good benchmarking data of you know what the percentage conversion rates are of, of sales development reps or whatever you know something something useful to them and then you get their email address in return for that but even more successful is if you can actually redesign the steps that they can actually start using your product maybe without giving in their email address and as they get into already having committed to using the product at a certain step you then ask them for the email address and by that stage they already trust you because they've seen that you've got a decent product and they're working with you and it becomes a little bit easier so that's a redesign of the step or incentive with motivation to to pull them through that that friction point then and i think if you if you go about things that way you have a much better chance of designing a funnel that works and also not overcomplicating the funnel which was really your key question that you started this with here i i have another tip for, for people which is as you start thinking about your buyer you might have heard me talking in the past about time to wow let me define that for you i think wow there are two kinds of wow moments in the buying process there's the really major wow moment which is when you've proven to somebody that your product really solves their problem and they're now ready to write a check for you. They're confident that this is the right thing for them and they're not worried about it any longer. And then there's many wow moments, which is where as they're interacting perhaps with your product, they get excited because they see something 
that's cool that motivates them to keep working on it and keep trying you know more stuff they're not they're not necessarily in powerful enough things that they will definitely say that okay now we're ready to write the check because we know this is going to work but they're still motivational and i think one of the things that i've been able to do to help entrepreneurs is get them to really think hard about what is the very specific big wow moment what are the things that they have to demonstrate and prove to their customer to enable them to feel totally confident that they can now make this buying decision and just by defining those immediately you start to become clear okay our whole funnel design should be around how do we get them to that point as quickly as possible and with as few steps as possible and that's also going to help you simplify your sales motion so if for example you can do that by letting them you know just sign up for your product and log in and immediately start using it and get those benefits bingo you're off to the races but most people can't you know they have to get some data into the system first and getting data is often a very high friction point for the customer and takes a lot of time and effort and energy and and that's kind of slows down the whole evaluation and sometimes there's many other steps that they have to go through so again i work a lot with companies trying to help them figure out how to eliminate steps cut them out and make it easier and easier for the customer to get to that wow moment without having to do much work so for example if your product needs data in it instead of forcing the customer to upload their own data which might take too long provide them with some sample data so they can start playing with the thing initially and see the benefits of it with some sample data and then if that's good enough and gets them excited that gives them motivation to actually take the do and go and do the work of, of uploading their own data into it but they might just give up if you don't see show them any benefits and the first thing they've got to do is work and there's no wow moment at all in there that's just a ton of friction and not very motivating for them to actually take the trouble to work and get their own data into your product right makes sense i guess the pursuit of customer centric or a buyer centric funnel design is very important as against vendor centric funnel design absolutely yeah those are those are, that's really one of my most core things that i help people with is switching the way they're thinking about things to being much more buyer centric right so when you are in that pursuit of being buyer centric like and you also said you need to have some sort of documentation which is very important so how should founders think of perhaps zooming in and then zooming out and like kind of identifying the micro us towards those micro conversions or micro aha moments that you mentioned right so basically yes. for the purpose of optimizing the funnel like either by shortening it reducing it so like how do you zoom in zoom out and identify those micro funnels great great question so what i do is pretty straightforward is a flow chart so the high level flow chart will start off as being you know maybe very big boxes that don't have that maybe compress several steps into them but over time you start to break them out into more and more steps that as you start getting clarity on how their different parts of it work but if you don't have that flow chart what i find is that people think they understand things but they actually don't and every time i ask them to draw the flow chart they're sure they are going to be able to do it but an hour and a half later we're still drawing it and we're having a really great constructive discussion around ideas that they have for how to make that funnel work better and so what i'm really saying here is that the process of drawing that flow chart is a wonderful tool for unleashing creativity and getting good brainstorming going and it's also a really important tool if you've got several team members who are all working on this problem together and you should have several team members because you're obviously going to have sometimes the sales people the marketing people and the customer success people together with the founders all trying to solve this funnel problem by having that diagram you create the center of energy for how people are going about this meeting so that everybody can focus on is this funnel working where is it not working how are we going to fix that point where it's not working 
and apply you know the brainstorming to to making the whole process work from from front end to to back end so much better and you know we haven't covered this yet here but the uh, one of the powerful things about funnels is that they're they're governed by very very simple math and uh, the math for a funnel is that if you take the number of people coming in the top of the funnel and you multiply them by a conversion rate and you multiply that by the dollar price you're charging everybody going through the funnel that's going to be your bookings number so just number of people multiplied by conversion rate by pricing is is the math of a funnel so now that you realize how simple it is it, it really makes you recognize okay if we can do anything here to increase our conversion rate by 10% we will increase bookings by 10% we can get 10% more people in the top of the funnel will obviously get 10% more output from the funnel. But the conversion rate is the really powerful thing. And certainly in the early days, I do not encourage people to try to optimize pricing. I think it's a big mistake to work on pricing too early until you've really got a big, fast flow going through the funnel that's working well, and then later on optimize pricing. Right. Makes sense. Could there be any other kind of fundamental ways on how you think about and how you design the funnel? Like, what principles to keep in mind and also like how do you evaluate that if this is the right funnel for whatever you are moving through it so one thing is optimizing for it but the whole funnel like how do you evaluate if it's the right funnel for whatever you are moving through it whether it's a lead in your lead life cycle or perhaps a user in your product funnel to the aha moment so it, it turns out there is one more important number associated with funnels which is how much does it cost you to put somebody through that funnel and one of the fascinating studies that I did was I, I started focusing in on how selling complexity could be uh, reduced because I, it was kind of clear in my mind that if you had a complex sale, it was going to be expensive and that would be kind of a detriment to success in, in selling and uh, force you to charge higher prices, which would also make things slow down. So I did this exercise where I took Dropbox, I took Constant Contact, I took HubSpot, and I took um, some companies that sold direct with a field sales force. And I looked at what their cost to acquire a customer, CAC, um, and I thought it was going to be like a linear correlation of how CAC changed as you increase the complexity. But what I found was it was exponential. So it, it cost 10 times more for Constant Contact to acquire a customer as it did for Dropbox and 10 times more for HubSpot to acquire a customer, even though they were using still inside sales, but it was a more complex inside sale and 10 times more for a field salesperson than it cost HubSpot with. So you went from 5000 to $50,000 and $500 only for, for a Constant Contact. So that was a real wake up call for me. And it, it really made it clear to me that sales complexity is an absolute enemy of the efficient sales process here. And yeah. so, you know, it, it was right that you were asking me earlier on, you know, how do I how do I stop my funnel from getting overly complicated? And I think the answer there is you, by getting into your buyer's mind and understanding how they work, you can think about ways to reduce sales complexity. So one thing that I love today is the, the concept of land and expand. So it's very, you know, if you try to get a $400,000 deal or a million dollar deal done, it's very hard. You're going to have a lot of people involved. You're probably going to have the CFO and maybe even the president of the company involved. That kind of multi-person selling step is very painful and expensive and slow and unpredictable. So a way to change the complexity there is to say, let's not go for the 400,000 sale. Instead, let's try to get maybe a, $5,000 product sold okay. where we can sell it to just a single person who can make their mind up without having to go and consult with other people, use a credit card to, to buy that product. Oh. And then once 
again, let's do an expand sale, which will be much easier because they'll have already seen that our product works for them. And that makes it so much easier to make that next sale. And maybe you could take that even a step further, which is to say, wait a second. Well, you know, rather than charging even $5,000, why don't we give them something completely free and let them use that and then try to convert the free usage where we've shown them some clear benefits and got them hooked on the product into getting them to pay us 5000 a year. And then, you know, after we've got one or two users at 5000 let's go and sell much higher up in the organization, convert that into a half million dollar deal. Those are ways that I go about thinking through how do you take out, you know, selling complexity and reduce your cost of customer acquisition. Right. And that expansion could be on multiple dimensions also, right? So like multiple seats or multiple departments or different value metric. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you, you brought up something that's um, really important there, which is the power of, um, you know, getting what I call multiple axis pricing. So the more axes you have, you don't want overly, you know, too complicated pricing with too many axes. But if you can have several axes, then it makes it easy to scale pricing so that you can start with somebody uh, at a very low price point. But as the whole organization starts using it and they really get more value out of it, you're able to capture that value and charge higher and higher prices for it. Yep, makes sense. That's what we call the inverted funnel after, uh, you know, uh, yeah, exactly the right. neck. Right? Uh, by the way, uh, like, what do we mean by leakage in the funnel? And like, how do you fix that? Yeah, so leakage to me is um, when you signed up a customer and after you've signed them up, you lose them. And so you don't retain them. So you've spent a lot of money to acquire them, but you failed to onboard them or get them successful with the product. And now you've lost them before you, you really get the benefit from that. And there's two damages to that. One of them is obviously you, it's, you lose a lot of money because you're not going to get the, the payback on your cost of acquisition. But secondly, more importantly, is you've got a bad customer, an unhappy customer out there who's going to tell other people that they don't think your product's worth buying and spending money on. I think it's extremely important that before you start scaling sales aggressively, you really are confident that your funnel is not going to be a leaky funnel and you fix churn and get it working to the point where you're very confident that it's in a, in a highly acceptable level. Makes sense. And it could be like in any funnel, whether it's your website. So for example, at the last moment, people are not just entering their email and do, do everything, right? But I guess, David, these are very obvious ones and with different tools and all, you are able to identify that and thus you're able to fix that. But what about the part of your funnel, which are not obvious? What do I mean by that is like, there is no blockage or leakage as such, but you could perhaps find some levers or some leverage, which might optimize the funnel for most impact. So like, how do we find and act on such asymmetric opportunities for a funnel optimization. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think that metrics are the most powerful way to understand those. And so if you have your funnel broken down, the key steps you need to have metrics for are going to show you both the volume of people coming into that step. And you want to look at a time series graph of that over time. And you really want to be, be sure that you have a way to keep increasing the number of people coming in. Secondly, the conversion rate. And I think what happens is as you start looking at those metrics, it starts to make it incredibly obvious to you where the funnel could be improved and, and where it's holding the business back. And then again, I like people to, to have the, the funnel diagram. And what I forgot to talk about when I talked about the funnel diagram, I believe there are certain parts of the funnel diagram where you want a micro funnel. Example of that would be when you do a free trial of a product. I think that's one of the single most important places in the sales cycle where if you're capable of really making your product do the selling for you, it is a super 
super potent thing for the business. It can supercharge the business. You could call that product-led selling or product-led growth. And it's how the customer wants to work because they really hate salespeople. They don't, you know, they don't love talking to salespeople at all. And they would far rather just be able to go to a website and test something out all by themselves and right. figure out if it without having to interact with your people. And that's what you want too, because your salespeople are incredibly expensive. And if you can get the customer to sell themselves, that's brilliant. So in the product area, I recommend having a micro funnel diagram where you literally go through every single step that the customer has to do to get to that wow moment. And things like we talked about, you know, is it clear for them what's journey to take to see this wow moment in our product? Because if it's not, then you perhaps need a product like a Walk Me or several others that are in that space that will guide you through the steps needed to get to the wow moment quickly and not have an accidental you know, uh, mishap where you don't remember what to do or don't know how to do. Is the product obvious to use? Are any of those steps in there, like connecting it to Salesforce, difficult steps because you have to go and talk to maybe IT and get their approval to connect it to Salesforce? How do you maybe get rid of that? So I think, again, it's a combination of knowing the conversion metrics and realizing, okay, our funnel is just not working as well as we want it to because this part is just not converting very well. And secondly, using these funnel diagrams as brainstorming tools, those are the things that are going to lead you to recognizing where you've got opportunities for big breakthroughs in funnel design. That makes sense. An example I could think of is like, let's say in your funnel, you have assigned some time for your SDRs to, let's say, qualify the leads coming in from the website, right? But in yep. this step of the funnel, let's say you introduce a chatbot, which asks the prospect the same questions and boom, you have kind of reduced the steps for the SDR. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect example. You know, you're, you're thinking through, can I cut humans out when you take that step? Because humans are both expensive, but secondly, right. they're also kind of off-putting to the customer. So the more you can take humans out and make it make it something that the customer does themselves with self-service, the better you make your funnel. So it's a great example. Makes sense. So let's talk about the third phase, which is like pouring oil onto the fire and scaling the business, right? So like what changes then in the funnels like that we have already talked about and what changes should happen when you go into that third phase? Right. Great question. So, so one of the biggest things that I would say about the first two phases is it's not predictable how long it's going to take you to find product market fit or to figure out how to make your funnel really, truly repeatable and scalable and profitable. And because of that, it's really important that you're very, very careful with burn and do not hire people unless you absolutely absolutely a certain that it's the right point in time to hire them. So I'm a strong believer that, you know, controlling burn and keeping it really tightly under control while you're searching for product market fit or searching for repeatable, scalable and profitable growth process is really important. But when you hit the phase where you need to start scaling, everything changes. You are now really ready to invest money because things are repeatable and they are scalable and they are profitable. So you should be doing them as fast as you possibly can do. And I often have to explain to people why that's so important. And the reason why it's so important is that the tech business is almost invariably a winner take all business. And that means that if you are not the winner in your segment, you will not generally be a very profitable company that grows very well. The winner, Salesforce.com in the CRM space and other segments generally runs away with growth. That growth leads to them having much more capital to invest in their product and more selling. They get more press. The press talks about the more they have more customers that are talking about them and referring other customers. It's like a flywheel that really accelerates 
it's the, the speed at which the winner starts to become the, the winner in every sales situation then. And buyers even have to ask the question, you know, why am I not buying salesforce.com and answer that question to their bosses rather than, you know, why should I buy this product? So that says that at that moment in time, the mindset of the entrepreneur has to go through a very funny change. And I've, I've seen this change being really hard for founders to, to adapt to because they've gone through so much effort to save money and not hire people. And now they have to become excellent at hiring fast and scaling fast and investing money and spending money to, to get that growth to happen. So one thing that's really key here, I talked about hiring. I believe somewhere part the way through the phase where you're building repeatable and scalable, you hit that scalable phase, you have to learn to become excellent at recruiting. And recruiting is getting tougher and tougher and tougher as there are more startups right. out there eating for the same resources. So I do think that you have to bring recruiting in-house and you have to recognize that becoming excellent at attracting people, creating a brand that uh, people that are looking for jobs find an exciting brand and creating a great experience when they come and interview with you is, is all important. Teaching your managers how to uh, interview well and hire well, that all of that needs to, it's really like another funnel that you have to create for hiring because you've got to find, find, find candidates and attract them and put them through an evaluation process to figure out if you want to hire them, et cetera. So that's one key thing. And then the other, the importance of being able to accelerate fast and, you know, find capital. So being able to raise capital well is another key skill that really separates the companies that do well from the ones who don't do well. But it's hitting the hitting the gas, hit the accelerator pedal, run, actually, um, you know, have to hire a lot of salespeople. Make sure you don't miss how many salespeople you forecast you'd have. In the past, you'd probably been quite proud if you hired slower than your plan because it meant you had less expenses and you, you therefore would right. save some. In this situation, every time you don't hire a salesperson on time, you're inevitably going to miss your sales plan, your bookings plan, because you don't have enough capacity to bring in the orders that are needed. And so hiring on time is a, just a crucial factor for, for hitting plan in that phase then. Absolutely. David, you earlier talked about kind of the mathematics for a funnel, which is like you pour something on top and obviously the conversion rate and there could be CAC and then there could be the time to convert and uh, flow that item throughout the funnel. So like how do you segment different sources or perhaps persona for the funnel? What do I mean by that? It, let's say in your acquisition, your funnel mathematics could like whatever, but if you don't do segmentation in that, you would not understand that for acquisition, your outbound emails are the best performing or or your Facebook ads were the worst performing. So like, how do you do the segmentation in throughout the entire funnel? Yeah, it's a really great question. So I think there's two forms of analysis there. The first form is customer segmentation. Hmm. So I'll use HubSpot as an example here. HubSpot sells to several different types right. of customers. They exactly. have very, very small businesses. They had mediumly small businesses and they had larger businesses. And then they sold through the channel. And they it was super important that they tracked both the CAC and the LTV for those particular segments. And one once they did that, they were able to discover something really critical, which was that the VSB, the very small business segment, really was not a profitable segment for them. They had, they had very high expenses selling to them and they weren't uh, charging very much money, so they didn't, they didn't do well. And those people churned at a high rate.
rate and didn't buy much more after their initial purchase. So the PAC LTV metrics showed that really quickly. This was a bad segment. But at the same time, the same analysis showed that actually when they sold through the channel and the channel was selling to these very small businesses, that had great economics. So all of a sudden, what they did was they were able to say, we, we're wasting all these salespeople on this VSB area. Let's move them all across to the channel and we should be investing more in the channel than we have done because it's actually much more profitable even than our small and medium-sized business. And so, you know, a year later, they had something like 20 salespeople up from one salesperson focused on the channel business. So that's one form of segmentation. The other kind that you referred to is lead sources. And here, you were quite right. You were talking about the fact that, you know, sometimes you might initially start your business off by trying to use Google AdWords. And that would be what you might find out with Google AdWords is that it works very effectively, but unfortunately, you might discover that it brings in only very small customers and doesn't find you the really big customers that are perfect candidates for your, you know, for your really big deals that you can do. And then you might in parallel be running a very expensive lead channel, which is um, sales direct SDR, sales development reps. And they're, they're really expensive, but you might find with your sales development reps is that even though they only produce, you know, 20 leads per month, the leads that they're producing are actually really great customers. These are big accounts. They buy a lot and they expand a lot. So the only way to really evaluate Google AdWords versus sales development reps is to really have, again, CAC and LTV for each of the different lead source mechanisms that you go through acquiring your customers and look at those. And again, that's why metrics are so powerful with the funnel, helping you understand this part of the funnel is, is working really well, the SDR part, but maybe the Google AdWords, even though it seems like it's good, is actually not as good as we thought it was. <laughs> I'm trying very hard to get my dogs. <laughs> it's okay. My apologies. It's okay. It's uh, okay. So, uh, how do you measure over time? Perhaps, like your funnel economics is getting better. Your funnel is getting better overall, time over time. So, like because you know there are so many variables and many funnels and conversions, a conversion percentage for each step, right? So, like overall, if you have this machine, uh, this funnel, how do you see over time that it's becoming better? The economics are getting better. Right, and, and it's a great question again. The 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 answer to that is you need time series graphs. So you want to be tracking and and I'm always a little bit cautious here because obviously the level of sophistication that you have increases over time. And in the very early days of designing a funnel, you won't have the sophistication. So hopefully my nine-step process there makes it a little bit easier to recognize when you need different metrics. But by the end of repeatable, scalable, and profitable, you should have a very good set of, of metrics. So you're looking at the number of people coming into the, each step, you're looking at the conversion rate, and you're looking at the overall CAC and LTV, and you're looking at that by customer segment and you're looking at it also by lead source. And those graphs that you're looking at should be time series based. And that's a time series thing that, that's going to help you understand, are you consistently achieving what you want to? And if you're interested in knowing the, the number one goal out of all of this here, for me, is pretty simple, which is, can you show that with your machine that you're building here, that you can consistently increase the bookings quarter after quarter. And by bookings, if you're in a recurring revenue business, I mean the net new ARR that's coming in quarter after quarter. So it's a very, very easy thing for me to say, but it turns out to be a really hard thing for the business to be able to actually put to do and put into practice. And so that it's not ARR because it's if you have the same bookings, you know, let's say I'm booking 100K in new ARR in Q1, and then I book another 100K in Q2, and then another 100K in Q3, then my 
my ARR will have gone 100, then 200, then 300. So it's increasing. And every startup I, I see tends to show me that graph of how the ARR is increasing. And immediately I ask for the other graph. What I want to see is the graph of the 100, 100, 100. And if I see 100, 100, 100, that tells me, well, it might be repeatable, but it's not scalable. And they haven't figured mm-hmm. out how to scale it. I want to see it going, the bookings going from 100 to 150 to 200 to 300. And that way the ARR is growing exponentially, not linearly. And that's, again, as I say, super easy to say, super hard to achieve, but that is your goal. And you want that goal to be achieved at the same time with good LTV to CAC and months to recover CAC. Those are the two key metrics for the profitability side of things. And by and large, if you have good LTV to CAC, it's an indicator that you've probably also cracked good customer attention. But if, if and that would be the other thing I'd be looking at here is I want to be certain that your business has very happy customers and that the product is really doing all those customers what they thought it was going to do for them in, in terms of affecting their business. Right. Makes sense. David, why and how to create alignment across the whole team? Doesn't matter like whether it's a five people, 10 people, 20, 50 people team, because you know, your kind of funnel is kind of showcasing your North Star as well as the steps and conversion and, and in between, right? So like, how do you create that alignment? Uh, so I, I like to do that in a couple of ways. Number one, I would use this goal that I just outlined to you of how do we grow bookings on net new ARR consistently and use that goal as a bonus goal, a shared bonus goal across every one of the different uh, groups in, in the company. And then similarly, I would add in the LTV to CAC metrics into that as well. So, so by unifying what people get paid on and are asked to think about regularly, that's one great way to unify them. And then the second thing I think you need to do here is break down the silos that typically exist between sales, marketing, product, and customer success, and recognize that the funnel requires all of those four groups to work really well together. So for example, you know, you could fix churn by making product better. You could fix churn by making the documentation better. You could fix churn by making the onboarding process better. You could fix churn by stopping the salespeople from selling the product with too high of a set of claims about what it can do, and then you can't actually meet those claims. So what you're seeing there is that each of the departments can all fix customer success. Similarly, the product group can make it easier for the salespeople to sell. The marketing group can make it easier for the salespeople to sell. So all these functions need to have the silos broken down between them. So I recommend creating, you know, funnel optimization group or a growth group, you could call it, that meet regularly and that has these common metrics that they look at and looks at these diagrams, these flowcharts of the funnels and the micro funnels to ask the question of how do we achieve the goals that we're after. And the beauty of that is that you've got now a very simple thing, which is the funnel becomes the place where everybody in the whole company is able to get aligned. And they all recognize that our entire business is a funnel. If we fix this funnel, our business is going to run well. And it's a really nice unifying, simplifying way of bringing things together. Makes sense. So David, that was pretty much it. Any final advice you'd give to founders on funnel design, funnel optimization, any big mistakes that you see founders doing or any big learnings that you have had up to now? Yeah, I think the, the, only, the only thing I would add here is that we try to cover a huge amount of material in an audio form in only one hour. And people are going to find that there's just not enough detail for them on some of the things here. And if that's the case, I just want to point them to my blog for entrepreneurs.com 
Com and point out in particular that there's a section in there called zero to 100. If they search for zero to 100 videos, they're going to find that there's a bunch of slides that go into a lot of this detail with much more detail than we were able to talk about. And there's also videos of me speaking on this topic and several other people speaking on this topic. And I promise you, every one of you, there is nothing salesy in any of this material. It is all educational, all focused on just trying to help founders um, solve how to create better startups. And that's where they can go and get additional information and more detail than we, we were able to cover. Awesome. Awesome. Anything you would like to plug in your Twitter, LinkedIn, how can people reach out to you? My Twitter address is uh, Boston VC at Boston VC. And you know, if people want to reach out to me, my the best way to do that is probably through something like LinkedIn. Well, David, uh, thank you so much for all the insights. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Arun, it was, was really a pleasure talking to you. You've clearly done your homework very, very well on this topic. So thank you for a great set of questions. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Do give me your feedback about the podcast. What could be improved? What topics and guests you would like to see on Insights Ali? You can leave a comment on the YouTube video or could email me at arun at insightsali.com. You can also message me and connect with me on Instagram, Twitter, etc. My handle everywhere is at the rate arun1192. And remember, always be learning. Bye.